This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 90 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Rob Reck, Chief Information Security Officer at Ping Identity. With nearly 20 years of experience in IT, security, compliance, systems, and networking, Rob has witnessed the evolution of the space. He shares his professional journey, his management style and philosophy when it comes to hiring, and where he sees the intersection of identity management and threat intelligence. We'll hear about his role with Ping Identity, protecting the organization and their customers, and where he sees identity management and access control heading in an increasingly connected world. Stay with us. I'm one of those guys who did not start out uh, with security in mind. I actually was a history major in college. I, I got out of school and six months into my academic career realized it was it was ridiculously boring and I ended up getting a job as a video game tester and a tech support person for electronic arts, uh, helping people get their video games working and uh, and doing testing for Madden football and some other games. Now, now, had you had an uh, interest in tech from the get-go? Were you one of those uh, kids who were following consoles and computers and all that stuff? Yeah, I was you know, a child of the 80s, so I, I did an awful lot of PC work. I was one of those guys who bought magazines and copied the, the code out of the magazines to you know, make your own games and, and then you know, change the code as you figure out what the different things do and use that as the real first opportunity to learn how, how software works, uh, programmed in basic, and, and you know, really had the chance to, to play with computers as a kid. Um, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't a, a clear career path as I grew up. So I didn't think of it as a job. It was just kind of a hobby, something I was always good at, you know, in the, in the dorms in college, I'd be the tech support for the, for the other folks around me. It wasn't until I, I really got out of school and realized I didn't know what I wanted to do that I, I thought about my hobby being, becoming my profession. And, and that's really how, you know, I got into tech support and then used that as a, as a way to get into like formal IT. And I became like a network administrator and, uh, and, and then, you know, took that into security over the, over the, probably a decade or so later. So, you know, talking late nineties that I, uh, got into it and, and by 2006, I was, you know, firmly a security guy running a security program for a, for a software company here in Denver. Now, did you pursue any of the, the formal training, any certifications or anything like that? Or was that not necessary for the path that you were on? No, I, I, I do. I, I really believe in certifications and not so much for the sake of getting certified uh, as that can mean nothing or everything, but the process of, of studying. I mean, I got my CISSP in the 2007 timeframe. Um, that whole process was, was fantastic. You know, while I knew a lot about systems security and telecommunication security, I didn't know much about physical security at the time. I didn't know much about risk assessments. And it gave me that, that kind of, you know, freshman level knowledge of all of the different different disciplines of security. And, and there's still things that I think about, you know, kind of going back to that certification from over a decade ago, you know, that's where I learned about crossover error rates. And that's, you know, where you start to really get some of those concepts that, you know, maybe you don't use on a day to day basis in your job, but it's awfully nice to know them when they do come up. So I have, I have CISSP, I got a C-RISC certification. Uh, later on, I got that uh, CSA, the Certified Cloud Security Knowledge Certification as well. Hmm. It's interesting to me because I, I too, you know, came up in the 80s in the, the 8-bit computer era. 
Um, and I think those of us who who took that path, um, I, I can't help thinking that we have a, a real, maybe a different fundamental understanding of how these systems work, but just by virtue of how basic the, the systems were back then. Yeah, it, it, it's funny, you know, it, it was kind of like a car, right? Where a, a car today, you can't just open the hood and, and find the parts. Mm. Uh, same thing with computers. You know, back, back when we learned about them, you can get your hands in there and you can change out the parts easily. You understand how what, what the different things do. I think as things have become more complex, it, it is a lot harder to get those fundamental concepts. Yeah. What are your recommendations uh, for students who are coming up looking to get jobs in the cybersecurity era? Do you have any tips or words of wisdom for them? Dave, I think we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice, but, you know, when we talk about ourselves as, secur- as security people, as, you know, a, a security person doesn't mean much to me. You know, are you a penetration tester? Are you an application security person? Are you a policy person? Are you a trainer? You know, really figure out, even if you're, you know, a systems security person, well, what systems are you good at? And, and what can I really put you on? Because it's very unlikely that the person who I would want to hire to be my Windows security person is also the one who I want to have for my AWS security. Um, and the, the point there for me is it's not so much about becoming a security professional. It's about figuring out what technology you want to work with what technology is it that you really want to dive in deep and get to know well enough that you can not only implement it, but you can implement it securely and you can give guidance for other folks to implement it securely. So figure out what that, out what that is, right? Uh, you know, go play with different technologies, go play with Linux and go get into networking and maybe learn how to program and uh, figure out what is it you want to do around security and, and start to do some programs and some uh, and play some games in that area. Yeah, it's interesting to me that, that you mentioned uh that you started out uh, studying history. And I think I, I hear that a lot of uh, people start in other things and they end up uh, working with computers or, or tech. But, but I wonder, what's your take on, on how having that background makes you perhaps more well-rounded than you otherwise would have been? Yeah, it, it helps a lot with those softer skills and being able to put together a presentation, being able to do research, being able to go present, talk about those things. You know, later on in my career, I decided I wanted to go back and get my master's. And, you know, I, at that point, I probably had 15 years experience. And I, and I really strongly debated, do I want to go get my, my master's of science in, uh, in computer science or do I want to go get an MBA? And at the end of the day, I, I chose to get an MBA uh, really based on the fact that the skill sets that, that are most important is, is really not about what technology I know at this point. You know, it's not that hard to create a, a really good now, maybe even, you know, nearly perfect security architecture. It's not that hard to create the architecture, but it's incredibly difficult to implement that architecture, to get an organization to be willing to, to give you the money to, and, and really even more importantly, to let you prioritize the work to implement that architecture versus all the other things that are on their plate. And I thought going after an MBA would give me the language to speak, you know, in the language of the business. Uh, in a way that would be much more effective. And you know, coming out of it, I, I really do believe, you know, it's been over five or six years since I did that. I, I believe it's been a really big help. I can talk to finance in their language. You know, we can talk about EBITDA and, you know, I could talk to the HR folks in their language. And these things that I learned through that process make me a whole lot more effective security person, even though, you know, there really wasn't any security content in that MBA program. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. You know, I hear from many people about the importance of, uh, of being able to communicate across those disciplines within an organization, particularly when it comes to um, communicating with the board, with the with the higher ups, right. of uh, convincing them to buy into the programs you're developing. 
yeah, it's not reasonable to expect the board to come in, you know, understanding my language, right? Just, you know, they're, they're going to go talk to the acquisitions person and they're going to talk to the HR and, and finance and, and product people and the sales folks. It, they, all of those folks, all of us need to walk into the board able to speak the board's language. Fortunately for us, the board, you know, they think in risk. They understand risk. They understand, you know, the, hey, you have, to, you have to make decisions around uh, what you, what you want to mitigate, what you want to accept. So as long as we're able to talk in the language of risk and the language of you know what makes your business successful, I think the board's really receptive. But if you come in talking about you know vulnerabilities, if you come in talking about which, which web applications haven't been patched or what you know whatever more tactical stuff, I think that's when you lose them. And, and while they care, they just they just can't understand, and and you, you know they lose their respect for you as a business leader uh, if you can't come in and understand you know, what's important to them. Now you are the chief information security officer at Ping Identity. Uh, can you take us through what sort of stuff do you do there at Ping? What, what's, what, first of all, what, is, uh, what, what sort of products and services does Ping provide? And what's your day-to-day like? Sure. So, so Ping is a provider of uh, identity solutions, both software and uh, SaaS solutions uh, for a, a gamut of things. Uh, we do single sign-on, uh, single sign-on at Federation. We do access security, so that runtime authorization security. We do multi-factor, multi-factor authentication. We do directory services. We also do API monitoring and security. So, you know, kind of the, the top things that we do. My job at Ping is threefold. Number one, I'm making sure that the corporate environment at Ping is secure. You know, that's going to be, you know, just like any other company where, you know, 750 employees make sure that they're working in a secure environment. I'm also securing our SaaS environment where we operate our uh, identity as a service products. Uh, we're also making sure that the secure SDLC is followed through all of our products. So I'd say, you know, my priority is thinking about cloud security um, and, and product security and uh, uh, software security as, as the most important things. And the last thing we do is we give assurance to our customers around our security practices. So we have, you know, SOC 2 and ISO certifications and we have to be compliant with GDPR and, and HIPAA. Um, so these are the things that I have a team that's focusing on and, you know, making sure we're answering those requirements from our customers and giving them comfort with what we do. Can you take us through what is the process that, uh, that you use to build your team? What sort of management style do you have? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, we've divided the team into, into three different categories and, and really based on what we talked about earlier that, that you know, security is not just security, right? The, the skill sets are, are very different between them. Um, so we kind of try and bucket the similar skill sets together. We have a product security organization, which are, they're all former, you know, enterprise developers. All the folks on that team have, have developed and, and been part of either the Ping product development or another organization's product development. Um, and, and they really sit with the teams that they're helping embed security into. So I have a security engineer that sits on our, our Ping One team, which is our, our, our IDAS offering, they sit in the same office, they go to the same daily scrums, um, and they, but they report up to my organization so we can make sure that what they're focused on is, is embedding security early and they don't get pulled into actually doing feature development, which is a risk you see if they're, if they're, develop, or if they're reporting into product instead. Mm-hmm. So there's that product security organization. We have our infrastructure security organization, which uh, similarly, they, they sit near our IT and our SRE, our site reliability engineering teams, making sure that we have security built into our corporate IT and our um, on our IDAS cloud offerings. And those guys are, are more like the typical uh, systems and networking type security folks. They have to know 
at how do you secure a Linux environment? How do you secure a Macintosh? How do you secure the AWS environment? So different people with different skill sets, but all there in that same team. Uh, and then the third one is our governance, risk, and compliance. And that's where the policies are written, the risk assessments are done, where you know, the folks who work with the auditors on our SOC 2, and they're the ones who answer questions from our customers who, who want to know, you know, what are you doing to keep us secure? I believe we do have a significant talent gap in security. So anytime we have the opportunity, I'd much rather bring in someone who's new to the field, someone who's either a career changer or who's been in someone doing technical work for the technology we're securing. So if I'm going to hire a new AWS security person, I'd rather hire an AWS expert and teach them security than than hire a security expert and go ask them to go learn AWS. Number one, I think it's more effective to teach security. Number two, it's awfully hard to to find security people right now. I'd rather go find uh, folks who know the technology that they're securing. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. I, I think you know, obviously we do have this uh, this skills gap, and hiring is difficult. I mean, how do you stay competitive when it comes to attracting people and and uh, convincing them that Ping is the place they want to work? Well, number one, you know, I, I'm fortunate to work at a, at a company that's uh, it is a, a fun place to work. We're growing. Uh, we get to work with really fun new technologies. Uh, you're not you know sitting there working with the same stuff forever. We're we're continually moving toward. Uh, the new versions of, of everything. It's also just a really fun place to work. We get to be with a, uh, in, in a company that cares about their employees. We really try and grow our people pretty aggressively. So you're always, you're always getting tasks that maybe you're not comfortable with. We're trying to move folks up the chain. There, you know, one of the things about hiring career changers is there's a lot of opportunity to teach and a lot of opportunity to grow. And, and I think folks see that as they're here on the team. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, threat intelligence. Uh, and I, I want to get your take on where do you feel like threat intelligence fits in with different organizations? Sure. You know, I, I, I'll say threat intelligence means a lot of different things, right? In my organization, you know, we use threat intelligence as a part of our day-to-day security operations. You know, so we're using not only our own internal threat intelligence, which tells us what does normal behavior look like, what looks strange and you know, what looks bad. But we're also enriching that with, with feeds that where we get to say, you know, here's, here's some, some bad IP address lists. Here's some behaviors or IOCs that look bad to us. And we use that to compare against our own internal data to find things that we should flag, we should take a look at. You know, anytime you, you see you know, a known botnet doing anything, well, that, that gives, us, gives us some insight that we might want to look into that and, and take some action. Um, from an identity perspective, I think it's it's actually incredibly interesting and something that you know Ping gets to help its customers with, and I get to utilize as a part of that. You know, identity intelligence or, or really enriching your identity with intelligence is all about effective security with minimal user friction. So the ability to evaluate and understand those factors, you know, make it de- to tell us is this person who they say they are? Is their behavior uh, starting to turn into you know into an insider threat? Now, we want to maximize that security while minimizing the impact. Instead of making people do a two-factor every single time they sign in, well, can we say most of the time when you sign in, we don't need anything at all because we know, you know we have all these factors to tell us this is the same person from the same device, same time of day. However, you know, when, when you start to do a little bit higher risk activity, maybe you know, checking your email, you can do without the sign-in at all. But when you start to go into the finance system or in, you know, into the uh, CRM, well, that's when we're going to start to add those other factors and start getting that higher level of assurance. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with zero trust, I think that all that plays into this, this, this idea that we're replacing the perimeter with, uh, with 
security that's embedded you know, in the, in the resources themselves, instead of trusting that, hey, because they got through the firewall, because they're connected to the VPN, we're going to let them get access to things. We, we open it up and say, listen, we're, tr- we're going to do this based on your behavior, based on the device you're coming from, based on the patterns that we know about you. Um, you're going to be able to get access to these systems, and we're going to use various step-ups. So the first time you sign in, maybe all we require is your username and password. The first level, you know, if, if you're really low risk, all we require is that. But then we can require a, a biometric sign-in. We can require you know, uh, doing, doing a, a push notification onto a device. We can require hardware tokens like a YubiKey. Uh, we have all these abilities based on what you're doing within the resources themselves. And, and as you say, you can dial it in based on what, uh, what perceived risk level there is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so as we dive into identity more specifically, you know, I, I think it's worth just taking a second to, to you know, talk about the basics. You know, we, there's identity, there's authentication, and there's authorization. So you know, what is identity? It's, it's who you claim to be. Um, and you can claim to be Barack Obama right now, right? Well, and, I, and you say, that's my identity. And I say, well, I'm going to authenticate that. You know, prove to me that you're Barack Obama. And, and uh, you, you need to sit, show me you know, a driver's license or you know, a picture of you on CNN or whatever it is. And then there's the question, okay, once, you, once you've proven to me that's who you are, um, then there's the question of authorization. What are you allowed to do as that identity? You know, Barack Obama's allowed to get into a whole lot more information than Dave Bittner. Right. So the, the authorization tells us what you should be able to do. Um, we can take all three of these things and start adding intelligence to them. You know, what does intelligent identity mean? Well, maybe you don't need to claim anything at all. Maybe you show up and we say, well, we can tell who you are because, you know, because you know, we recognize your face, we recognize your behaviors, whatever it is that tells us this is, this is Dave Bittner. Um, and that also helps us with authentication to say, okay, we have a first step of that. And if it's a low enough risk transaction, we don't need you to make any additional authentication steps. But, oh, this is a high transaction. This is something we really care about. Let's go one step further. Let's require biometrics. Let's require a push notification or something like that. For authorizations, this it all plays in together, right? You're allowed to do only what is appropriate to the, the need that you have. Of course, we've all, we're all familiar with the principle of least privilege, right? We can start to use intelligence to tell us, you know, how much do we trust this specific session for this user? Instead of saying Dave Bittner should have access to, you know, A, B, and C all the time. Well, for this particular session, because he's logging in from, you know, Los Angeles, as you're in, in Disneyland, we're only going to give him this lower level of access mm. um, and, until, until we, you know, maybe we do a step up or, or maybe later we can get more trust. We have the ability to do on the fly authorizations. I think we will often think about, you know, identity just as a pre-authentication mechanism. You know, before you sign in, we want to know who you are. You're signed in and it's kind of good to go. Well, authorizations in this, this runtime aspect gives us the ability to see during your session, based on what you're doing, do you need more access? Do you need less access? It's, it almost can be, it can be kind of like a workflow where, you know, once you started to go through the, the process of submitting a PO, that tells us that now you're in the PO process and, and maybe now at that point you're allowed to go in and review other POs, you know, depending on what your workflow is. Maybe right. not a great example, but we have this runtime application aware ability to start to do on-the-fly authorizations that, that lower the risk of someone, you know, a bad guy coming in and immediately doing a bad thing and hopefully don't impact the user's ability to do their job. That's interesting because I think there's this issue with uh, people getting privileges and keeping them, you know, people not having them automatically expire. Uh, You know, I may need access to this document now, but later on I might not. And so it sounds like one of the things that you all are doing is kind of 
uh, keeping track of that in, in real time. Yeah, it, we have the ability to really do just-in-time provisioning, right? You, you don't need to have that person have access to the application uh, indefinitely, just when it's appropriate for what they have to do. If there's a workflow system out there that says, hey, Dave needs to approve this, this uh, request, um, it, maybe that's when we provision Dave to have access to the system versus having it perpetually, which is much easier to abuse and you know gives it these rights that you just don't need to have. So getting this just-in-time access Getting that re that real application aware identity is what makes a big difference. When you talk about having your identity systems kind of as a standalone off to the side of your applications, I think that's where you really run into challenges. They need to have visibility within the application. They, they need to really be context aware to get the best n number one best security, number two best user experience. What do you suppose the future holds for identity? Are, are we are we moving into an era where the the username and password combination are going to fall by the wayside? That's a great question. You know, passwordless or the user experience of being passwordless is we're really on the cusp of getting there, right? FIDO2 is out and uh, those, you know, those tokens, which, you know, both YubiKey and, and Google are, are providing do allow a passwordless experience. Uh, I don't think, you know, we can expect that passwords are going to go away from mainstream use for quite a while. But those applications where you know user ability is important, where companies are just looking for a competitive edge, right? It can be a competitive edge if your users don't have to have a password. I think Google did it, or see not Google, Amazon did a great job just a, you know a few years ago where they don't even require a password for most orders at this point, right? They're willing to take the risk of a bad order and and refund it for the you know enhanced user experience of not having it. That said, in a corporate environment, you know we're a ways away from having that perfected. The ability to log into a workstation is there, but the you know that's you can now log into workstations with like Microsoft Hello and some other services without a password. But there's so many other systems in, internally that we're we haven't quite got there yet. Oh. However, federation getting the ability to use single sign-on across all these different applications get us a, a whole lot closer. And those organizations who are really dedicated to doing it, I, I think you know can achieve success in 2019. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, this notion of friction, and I think uh, that's really important because it's my sense that when you introduce friction, that's when you start having people come up with their own workarounds. Yep. Yeah, I mean, shadow IT, right? Any Anytime yeah. that, that we make things harder for users, they find other ways to do it. Um, and I'll tell you, I, I know from personal experience that having these onerous uh, password policies and you know where the you know the 12 characters upper lower case and um, you know if you've ever used apple's complex password it's even more frustrating because they say you can't have two consecutive of the same characters so i i couldn't use the word hoop you know h-o-o-p because that as a part of my password because that would violate their policy those kind of requirements just make users frustrated and make them look for ways to get around what you're doing you know they're going to increment their password rather than come up with unique phrases if if that's what they see um, so we have to be really on guard to make the user experience as good as possible and, and think of it as a customer service organization, right? We're, we're here to, to serve those customers and help them keep secure um, and do that in the best way we can. And um, I'll tell you one, one thing we've been working with in security at Ping is trying to get our own NPS score you know, from our customers. And our customers would be the internal Ping employees. How, do, how much do they like us? How much are they willing to, to recommend us um, as, as a good partner for them? I think that kind of keeps us keeps us thinking in the right way, right? Motivates us to, to be that kind of customer support organization. You know, one other thing I wanted to mention is just APIs that with what happened recently with 
Facebook and Google Plus and others that APIs are one of those invisible areas that are just critically important for a security organization to think about. You know, we've seen in the last year or so, you know, with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and the recent Google Plus API issues, uh, APIs are this invisible uh, access to all of your sensitive data that oftentimes both IT and security either aren't aware of or just don't feel equipped to deal with. Developers are creating the APIs. You know, they say it's good enough and, and, I, and security doesn't know any better to, to question that. Say we need to really think about what does API security look like, um, and from an identity perspective and intelligence perspective, it's really not that much different than a web application. You need to have um, you need to have author- authorizations. You need to have authentications. And you need to kind of monitor that traffic on an ongoing basis to figure out you know what does good look like, what does bad look like. You know, if these other companies had had that kind of monitoring and and been really digging into it, I think that these incidents kind of been avoided and. It's a whole lot better to to have that visibility and be able to take an action than you know have that back door open and, and just feel like it's out of our control. Our thanks to Rob Reck from Ping Identity for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.